Welcome back to the Dr. Vincent Buscemi podcast, formerly the Health and Wealth podcast, formerly the Citizen Hustle podcast, formerly the Toothpaste podcast. Shut up. I'm doing my best. Look at this guy right here. This is a physician assistant, Stefan Hartman. He is fully taking over health in his city, and he is treating patients at a more holistic level. He looks like a professional bodybuilder. I just had an hour conversation with him. An amazing guy. From the start of his life, his parents taught him to question authority, to question the status quo thinking, and he's been doing that his entire medical career. He's only 30 years old, and he already has an amazing reputation from bringing people from sickness to health. If you're in the, I think he said the Melbourne area, I'm not sure what part of Florida, but if you're in Florida, look up Stefan. He's going to get you healthy again. He has such an interesting backstory. He actually was fired from a couple jobs. His classmates don't talk to him anymore, all because he's trying to find the true answer to health and to find the root cause of disease. Stefan, thank you so much for this podcast. Guys, you're going to love this one. Basically, what's the origin story? Because you definitely don't follow mainstream medicine, but you look really, really healthy. So how did you get on this alternative path to healing people? It was my parents, you know, they didn't vaccinate me. They were very, uh, like nutrition was everything, right? We never went to a doctor. We never, I never went to a Western doctor. Uh, I was born in Texas and, uh, then I was raised in Europe, Italy and Germany for eight years. But, uh, when we had an illness, it was Chinese medicine. That's what my parents uh, studied in their youth. And that's what they practice in the household. We practiced a, a macrobiotic diet. It's this we don't try it. It's weird, like uh, almost proxy vegan diet. But, uh, yeah, and it wasn't the healthiest thing either. I wasn't the healthiest you know, kid. I was like, I had a weenie the poo bloated belly from all like the vegetables and plant fiber and stuff like that. <laughs> wasn't great. Uh, but no, my parents were always focused on nutrition to heal the body. That's the primary driver of disease and health. It's nutrition. That's how I was raised. But uh, we went to America eventually. Yes, because it's uh, you can't really do much in Europe. You know, can't start businesses. You can't like, there's so much, many laws and rules. So America is like still the place of freedom. That's where you want to go. So we did that. But my parents were like, oh, a, a, a real job, you have to go into medicine. You know, medicine, people are sick. You're always going to have like an income that way. So even though I had all this holistic uh, training and mindset, I went to allopathic medicine, which uh, the the right direction was PA school, physician assistant school. And I think it was the best choice for me, right? Because it allowed me to get a degree in two to three years and preserve some of my sanity, right? There was a lot of brainwashing with it. And uh, they didn't like me very much because I thought differently. You know, I had barely survived PA school. It was pretty brutal. No one really liked me. All my preceptors, they didn't like the questioning of things. Uh, but, you know, I managed to get through it barely in three years, master's program, which I don't think I would have survived a, a doctoral level of, of brainwashing. Uh, probably, they probably would have flunked me out. But I managed to get out of there and uh, went into general practice. I started working in internal medicine and urgent care office. And that was great because... Uh, it was actually kind of a really underserved area. So I saw a lot of pathology, a lot of disease. I saw these people coming in with all this 
sickness and illness and, and just disease states. And I was like, I was trying to do functional medicine and in an urgent care. I was telling people about nutrition and diet and supplements they should be taking. And some people, little light bulbs went off. Other people just looked at me like a fish. You get that blank fish I'd stare a lot from people who just, it's not going to work. So there's always that allopathic medicine, medicines, pills for these people. You're not going to change them. But there's some people, a little light bulb might turn on sometimes. You might put a little seed in their brain and they start thinking, what? This this drug causes this problem? What? Why can't I just be taking something natural? So a lot of people might be open to natural things if you just sit and talk to them about it. Um, pandemic started and you know I, I knew I needed to do something else. I needed to do what I'm doing now. But there wasn't like that opportunity there. Like that place I was working at, I told them my vision but they didn't buy into it. They were like, all right, we're not going to do this. We're just going to do our thing here, stay in our lane. So then I worked in, uh, what did I do next? I did spine surgery for a spine surgeon for a while, and that was okay, but that didn't work out. And then I worked in psychiatry. That really didn't work out because psychiatry is absolutely, uh, the way it's practiced is absolutely awful, right? It's just stay in your lane, give a pill for a symptom, don't order any tests. Don't even order a testosterone level in a depressed man. Like, can you believe that? You know, I got slapped on the wrist for ordering testosterone levels in depressed. By who? Men. Your boss or who? By, my, by the people who employed me. Yeah. And then uh, what really sealed the deal was when I started talking off chance positively about ivermectin. Oh, that was it. That was he's out the door. You can't say anything positive about ivermectin, even though it's been prescribed billions of times. So that didn't work out. And the whole time I was planning to start Iron Direct Primary Care. I was putting the ducks in alignment, trying to get everything situated and sealed the deal on that. So uh, by the time psychiatry job ended, I had already started Iron Direct Primary Care. What I did was telemedicine and house calls, right? Very simple, a low cost startup. And uh, I had a couple of people sign up. Uh, from my work in the urgent care, these people always told me, if you ever start something, we'll be your first patient. So I'd hit them up. So we started with like two or three patients. And I still worked urgent cares to pay the bills. So I, I traveled all throughout Florida. This was in the height of like the vaccine. People are getting vaccinated. So uh, I just posted about this on, on Twitter just now. It's like this conversation would happen a thousand times. They'd come into the urgent care with something, some weird new neurological issue, some chronic pain, some like brain fog, fatigue, or some new weird skin rash and illness. Thousands of times I saw this. And I'd ask them, when did you get the jab? When was it? And they'd look at me like, what? Well, why are you asking this question? When did you get the jab? And he would always like be proceeding whatever new weird condition they had. And I would ask my colleagues, as I work sometimes with other people in the clinic, I'd be like, hey, because they'd come out of the room and they'd be like, this weird young guy, he's 30 years old. He's got this weird chest pain. He doesn't fit any of the typical criteria for like a pulmonary embolism or a heart attack. He's 30 years old. Like, What's going on? I'm like, did you ask him when he got back? So they'd look at me like, should I ask that? Like, yes, you should ask that. So I, I sent him back into the room and they yes. And invariably the answer was yes. They got vaccinated in the, in the weeks preceding it because this was when everyone was getting vaccinated. And we were seeing this people coming into the urgent care again and again. Um, so, but to this day, like I saw two patients yesterday coming, new patients to my clinic, they've gotten the multi-million dollar workup. They've had been scanned literally from like head to toe and they get diagnosis of idiopathic, which means I don't know where it is. <laughs> idiopathic. Okay. 
And I sit down and I ask, when did you get the clot shot? And they look at me. What do you mean? Like, when did you get it? Your symptom happened here, this weird condition here. When did you get, well, I got the third booster in the month month preceding this. I'm like, yeah, your vaccine injured. They're like, what? How do you know this? I'm not an idiot, but still my, my colleagues out there, I don't know what it is. It's the lack of intellectual curiosity or not wanting to put two and two together or that whole uh, correlation causation issue. When it comes to this thing, you, 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 you look at a weird condition that appears out of nowhere and you have this experimental thing that you gave to a patient in, in the months preceding it. And then you have this thing that you can't control. You don't understand. It's clearly you clearly put two and two together, but this has happened again and again, thousands of times I've seen this and it's still bothering me to say why no one's putting, do you understand why no one's putting this together? Fear. They're obviously afraid. So you're unique in that you are in the medical profession and were you nervous at all that the urgent care was going to fire you or? No, I got fired from a lot okay. of places. They let me know. Yeah, I got slapped on the wrist various times and it was just... You know, people eventually like, oh, you, you just got to move on or something like that, you know. As a board, as a, I don't know how the Florida board is, the medical board, have they ever reached out to you about what you're talking about? No, they're very good here in Florida. I know some of my colleagues in the FLCCC, they got in trouble for various things like writing mask exemptions, writing vaccine exemptions, which, uh, you know, they got in trouble with the board. I, I never got in trouble with the board. Florida's been pretty good so far about that. So... The urgent care heard you talking about vaccines and then they fired you. How did that work? Um, how did that work? No, it, it wasn't like that. It was just like I kept asking these questions and eventually it was like, hey, yeah, you know, we should be. They, they, they were always like restricting like maybe my hours or, or something like that. It was like not a direct environment. It's just the, the environment came, became a little bit more hostile. And uh, the, the psychiatry job, it, that was pretty clear. They really didn't like me talking about ivermectin and trying to treat root cause, trying to give people supplements. They really didn't like me advising patients to take supplements. Yeah. They're like, oh, this is not FDA approved. You can't be telling patients to take a B vitamin. Uh, this could be dangerous or something like that. I'm like, what? There's supplements. They were giving people freaking Xanax every day. That's not I mean, <laughs> The supplement to Xanax and then thinking that one's more dangerous, like a supplement's more dangerous. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Uh, the spine surgery, that was good, though. He just, uh, he was getting crushed by insurance. He couldn't afford to keep me on. And then the, I was working for Advent Care, Advent, Advent Health, uh, Urgent Cares. They didn't like that I was prescribing hydroxychloroquine uh, to some people. So they, they didn't like that too much. But uh, that job just dried up anyway, because the pandemic started slowing down uh so it, it was all good every everything uh, i knew what i had to do and i was going in the right direction just to start this and help people. at any point during this because you're such an independent thinker were you like i shouldn't even be in medicine like this is too hard for me to think this way and practice in medicine yeah i was thinking of alternatives i was like well maybe i got to go back to being a professional tennis coach personal training something like that uh, you know, I always have that backup plan in mind because uh, medicine as, as it is currently, it's uh, pretty bad for patients and for people like me who try to think independently. 
I probably, I don't know what I would be doing if it weren't for Iron Direct primary care. I'd probably be working around emergent cares and, uh, you know, try not to stay too long in one spot. You know, you can work locums. You can do like, you can hop around to different places, just work for part-time for a time for somebody. I think that would be the thing I could do is just work part-time for a place before they, they Found figured out. <laughs> I mean, yeah, go to the next place before they figured me out. That's too stressful. So you start your own clinic and then how many patients did you have in the beginning? Oh, I started out with maybe uh, 50 or 60. And I, I gradually started accumulating them just by word of mouth primarily and social media there. Social media was a pretty good driver too. Uh, maybe a couple of patients out of the urgent cares, they came to me too, but mostly it was word of okay. mouth. Okay. And then you left the macrobiotic type of eating and oh, we yeah. have a similar diet. Are you the full carnivore diet or explain your diet? Uh, no. So I do need carbohydrates for playing professional tennis. I found, uh, it's very interesting. I have tried carnivore, but I don't have that explosiveness when I'm doing straight carnivore diet. I have good energy levels and I'm pretty lean too, which might also be an issue for tennis because I'll do carnivore once a year for one week to when I do an aesthetics Christmas photo shoot and it dries me out. You can see all my muscle definition very well. You can see it on my website, how like every muscle like defined in my body, it, I lose a lot of water when I do this diet. And so that's also uh, a detriment towards uh, tennis because I sweat so much and I need that water and carbohydrates help you hold on to some of that water in the muscle. Uh, but primarily, you know, it's, it's meat. It, most of my diet is, is meats, uh, eggs, beef, etc. I do eat carbohydrate and typically it's white rice. It's nothing crazy. It's like it's a bit of white rice, especially during tournaments. It's white rice. I don't eat gluten or bread products during uh, tournament training when I'm training intensely intense, which is all the time because I'll get tendonitis. I'll get lateral epicondylitis. It's something that actually uh, ended my tennis career early on in college tennis. I was taking ibuprofens, icing it, doing all the, you know, the, the things, you know, that they tell you to do. None of it worked. And I didn't know it was gluten for a long time. I actually learned it was gluten from a naturopathic doctor that I played tennis with up in Massachusetts during PA school. So are you completely gluten-free then right now? Yeah. Well, no, I'll eat like a sourdough bread. There's a fantastic bakery here and I'll get a sourdough bread on occasion for them, but not when I'm training intensely tennis because it'll still give me a bit of a tendonitis and I, I don't want to have that when I'm playing tennis. So it's obviously increasing your inflammation. This, yeah. Okay. Does. So when patients come to you, they already know your philosophy of medicine. Yeah, most of the time they do. Sometimes you'll get someone referred by someone and they have no idea what they're getting into. And I sit there and I'm like, okay, they didn't, the, the one who referred them didn't really explain <laughs> what's going on here. <laughs> and so you get a little bit of that fish-eyed stare. But when you start talking to them and teaching them uh, about health, then they start waking up a little bit and they're like, oh, wow. My doctors have been lying to me. So they'll tell, they'll say that. So you, are you telling me my doctors have been lying to me the whole time? I'm like, yeah. lying to you? They just don't know any better. And they're just doing what they've been taught. So what are the most common problems people come to you for? Fatigue and obesity. Okay. And how are you treating that? Everyone's fatigued, first of all. Yeah. <laughs> and there's so many reasons why are people fatigued. And, you know, when I was... I was still in my big group text from uh, PA school before they blocked me. <laughs> oh my yeah, I was still talking with them for a while. 
And I would see in their comments, they're like, oh, I just had a patient chief complaint fatigue come into my office. I can't stand these. My peers hate fatigue. And fatigue happens in the primary care any every day. Like they'll get every patient's fatigue. My peers hate it because there's no pharmaceutical to treat fatigue, right? They understand the allopathic medical system. It's, it's a symptom for a pill. There's no pill that really helps fatigue, if you think about it. I don't know of any. Uh, but in functional medicine, we peel back the layers of why they have fatigue, and we, we address that. We treat that root cause. And in, I love fatigue. I can treat fatigue all day. I know how to fix that. I just listen to people's symptoms or, or, or their, their history, and I'll, I'll tell them right up why they're fatigued and what they need to change. Uh, so that's easy for me. What are some of the common things people are doing that are causing fatigue? Uh, mostly it's poor diet. They're eating the standard American diet, which is mostly grains and sugar and uh, low salt. Well, they're, they may be eating high salt, but it's not not the right ratio. And they might be drinking plenty of water throughout the day, but they're not adding water or, or salt to it. Uh, so they're really running off of low protein and they've been told to avoid fats and they've been told to eat a lot of plant matter. So they might be eating a lot of plants and they think they're doing great. Uh, but their mitochondria is struggling, right? They're, they're full of seed oils, polyunsaturated omega-6s. Their cabinets are full of these condiments. Every one of them has canola oil and soybean oil. It's just clogging up their cellular metabolism and they're fatigued and obese and they don't understand why. And it's just their diet for the most part. Is that where you start? So when someone comes in, they say, Doc, I'm fat, I'm tired. What's the first step? I, I just, I run, say, what do you, what did you have for breakfast today? And they'll tell me. And someone, what did they tell me? Yesterday? They're eating this, uh, this, this yogurt mix. Right. And, uh, it's, uh, it says like 20 grams of sugar in it and they have like three cups of coffee and they have, what do they have for lunch? A granola bar. And then maybe for dinner, they actually eat something of substance. They eat maybe a potato and some meat. That's pretty good. But they have low protein throughout the day, and they, they're not telling me this until I ask them. I'm like, well, do you eat anything in between these meals? And yeah, they're snacking on something. You know, they grab the candy bar or something. They're trying to get these little bursts of sugar energy throughout the day, and that's how they're sustaining their, their brain, and that's not what the brain runs off. It doesn't like eating these little candies and, and grains throughout the day. It's, it's not conducive towards optimal lifestyle. And that's primarily what drives their fatigue. If you can get them to eat a proper ancestral diet, uh, their life, that spark comes back for a lot of the time. So what are your colleagues saying, what, the PA group that kicked you out, when you're, are you telling them how you're treating fatigue and they're telling you this is ridiculous? Um, yeah, I would, I, would, I would tell them, hey, like test their hormones. I tell you what, this guy that you're talking about, he has low testosterone. And they're like, oh, I don't want to test testosterone. These guys, they just want to come in and they want to get erections and stuff. Like like most of my peers, they're like, oh, you just want to give guys erections by giving testosterone. Yeah, that's what they think. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I was once, I was trying to bring a, when I was trying to find an MD to come onto my practice, I talked to one, it was a good good mentor of mine and I told him about what I wanted to do and that's what he said he said you just want to give guys erections I'm like no testosterone is like so much more than that 
Okay. Now, hormones are so much more than what you think they are. Oh, it's just about sex, you know? Yeah, it is, but there's so much more. But let's say you're 45 and you can't achieve an erection. Wouldn't you want somebody to help you to get one? Yeah. I mean, that'd be huge for their life. Yeah. But go back to PA school because this blows. So what are you saying in PA school to make it so difficult to be with your classmates? Well, in PA school, I, w- I was pretty conservative back then, and they didn't like that. You know, when you're in Massachusetts in, in a university, and then you're doing rotations at this, this big like, medical institute, everyone assumes you're a liberal. They just talk to you as if you're a liberal and that you're all in line with uh, the LGBTQ and all of it. They just assume. They talk to you like this. You just got to shut up. You got to keep your head down. You just got to nod and agree with them. But they knew that I wasn't like that. So they didn't like me, one, for that purpose. But then the second is I, I was I was questioning, I was asking questions. And I thought they were legitimate questions. Uh, but you're not supposed to question, apparently, uh, about medical dogma, right? If, you, if something is dogma and you, you're just supposed to go with it and you're just supposed to do it, you're not supposed to think critically about it, which was really weird to me because one of the first classes that I had in PA school was evidence-based medicine. And we got this, uh, this great doctor. He's a prison doctor. And the reason he worked in the prisons is because he didn't get along with the colleagues in the ivory tower at the big universities. So he stayed in the prison and he gave us uh, this lecture on evidence-based medicine. It was basically looking at statin drugs, looking at how these trials were manipulated. And so that was a very, that was eye-opening for me, but that was like the one and only class. And I apparently was the only one of the, my 30 classmates who was paying attention in this class, right? Because after that, it was just rote memorization, learn a symptom uh, uh, to pill, basically work up to pill. Like you have to do this work up and these symptoms so that you can give the pill. <laughs> that's pretty much what it was. And, you know, that's why, uh, that's why PAs exist in the first place. You know, it's kind of like... Uh, I don't know. I don't think anybody's ever described it like this, but the reason PAs and nurse practitioners exist is because medicine has been distilled down to the level of basically rote memorization, right? You don't need to be, you don't need to have all this education at doctoral level to practice medicine in the U S you just need to follow the guidelines. You just need to do as you're told there's established guidelines. You follow them and no one will ever say you did anything wrong. If you just do what the guidelines are, right? And so that's why PAs exist. It's to help uh, the medical establishment see more patients, right? Drive more revenue for the company, for the doctor that you're employed by. See more patients. PAs can help. You just follow the guidelines. You just follow as you're told. And and you make more money for people by seeing more patients. So um, that's, that's what it is. But... There's not much room for critical thinking and really trying to get to the root cause of problems. And that's because there's no time for it if you're using an insurance model of care. I once got an offer, a job offer at uh, Omni Health, a primary care job. They said, oh, we'll pay you, uh, what was it, $87,000 a year. But you have to see at least 26 patients a day in a primary care setting. If you want to make a bonus at the end of the year, you got to try to hit 32. You got to get those numbers up, son. You got to grind it. And so I looked at this job and I was thinking, oh my God, I got to see 30 patients a day in primary care. Mind you, I spend for a new patient here, I spend one hour with them. Follow-ups are minimum 30 minutes. There's not enough time in the day to see 30 patients. In eight hours. 
in eight hours. It's not possible. Like you would have no life yeah. at all. You're just doing charts all night, which a lot of my primary care colleagues are doing, which is why there's a primary care shortage in the U.S. because no one wants to do it. It's terrible. It's no lifestyle. So uh, that's that's the problem with primary care. It's just that insurance grind. It's just cranking patients out every 15 minutes. So you literally have to see one. You have to listen to their symptoms. You have to give them a pill. You have to out the door. You have to have them come back in, in, in maybe a month or three months, whenever their insurance allows you to build their insurance again. And then you see them again and you talk to them again for 15 minutes and do it again, right? That's the grind. So I've gotten away from that by doing direct primary care, which it's an affordable subscription model of care. Patients can schedule appointments when they need it. Uh, but it gives me that flexibility to see patients and spend more time and actually think critically about their disease and illness, order advanced testing, spend time interpreting advanced testing with them, trying to figure out a root cause solution for their issue, which is not easy. So are you completely insurance free? Yeah. It's basically a gym membership, essentially. With a highly trained, very intelligent physician assistant, not a trainer. So do you bill insurance at all on the insurance that goes to their house or you have no connection with insurance? No connection at all with insurance. I'm completely separate from it. How do you, so I'm insurance free as a dentist, but what I do is I bill their insurance, the check goes to their house and they pay me up front. How do you, I don't want to say convince, but how do you explain to patients that the level of care you're giving them is impossible with insurance? Yeah. Um, Sometimes, uh, I mean, you're, that is a, the, the big selling point. Um, I don't know. I don't really have to explain myself anymore. Patients get referred to me because they hear that I'm great and that I actually take time. And then when they sit in front of me and, they, and I just sit with them for an hour and I let them talk, and they're like, wow, no, no one's ever, no, none of my doctors that I've ever been to has ever listened to me like that. Man, you do that enough times and people recognize that what you're doing is valuable. And then you order tests that the doctor would never order, right? No one orders hormone panels for some reason. I don't know why. It's critical towards health. I order hormone panels routinely. And people are like, wow, this is cool. I like to see what's going on here. And then I order advanced lipid particle panels. I try to get, I try to differentiate not just high cholesterol, but what's high inflammation? What's causing arterial disease? What's the root cause of this? So I, I give them a lot more information and patients are intelligent at least the patients that come to me, and they want to get a little bit more information about their health rather than just be told by somebody in a white coat with a big degree on the wall from a fancy university that they have to take this pill. Patients don't accept that, at least the patients that come to me, and they want a little bit more information. They have intellectual curiosity, and those are the patients that come to me and like this level of care. Well, you've, you're, you're so much smarter than your colleagues because you kind of set yourself up in a way to get the better patients or patients that are also taking responsibility for their own health. Cause your end point's not the pill. Your end point is to actually get them healthier. Correct. The, the thing also that differentiates me from my colleagues is that when you don't take insurance, you don't want to see your patients more often. So when you're taking insurance, you want the sicker patient because they have to come in more often, right? You, you want them in every week if possible so that you can bill insurance. I once for, worked for one internist and she, she told me when I worked for her urgent care, she was like, find me someone with meat on them, right? She wanted someone who was very sick. And if I could send her very sick patients, she could see them more often and she makes more money. 
by giving them more pills. So she has to monitor their liver enzymes more often. She has to monitor their cholesterol more often. They like this. But for me, I want to make my patients so healthy that they're not blowing up my phone at 10 p.m. because they're sick again, right? I want my patients optimized and healthy and not seeing me all the time, right? So that's a completely different model of care. Absolutely different. The incentive is different. My incentive is different. Yeah, and now you're competing with the free market. Now you're competing with big screen TVs and you actually have to get results to keep the doors open. Yeah. So what questions were you asking in PA school that were changing your line of thinking? Obviously cholesterol, because you eat a lot of meat. So yeah. what else were you like, this is complete BS? Yeah, in pediatrics, pediatrics was, that was a lot of BS for me, you know, I was actually held back in the pediatrics rotations, I had to repeat it twice. Yeah, I had to repeat it twice. Because I didn't get along with, uh, you know, the vaccines, for instance, I wasn't asking when the child was last vaccinated, I wasn't asking the questions, because you're supposed to these well child checks, all a well child check is, is figure out if they need another poke today, you need to look in the chart, see if they got their last vaccine. Oh, it's not up to date. Got to give them another poke here. I wasn't asking that because it didn't, <laughs> it didn't sit well with me. I didn't get any vaccines when I was little. I didn't want to poke all the children there. And, you know, I was talking to parents about, you know, uh, maybe pushing the vaccines out, you know, not doing them all today. You know, you can't do that. And the other thing that really bothered me was, oh my God, what was it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to ask the parents if they were on a well water or a tap water line. And you'll know this as a dentist. You want to hear your opinion on this. And they asked me, you got to ask the patients if they're on well water or tap water. If they're on well water, you have to prescribe the children fluoride that tablets. That blows my mind. Because the fluoride tablets strengthen their teeth. It does not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is complete BS. In dental school, there was a pediatric clinic, and they had us ask the same questions. And they would want us to prescribe fluoride tablets to kids. I was like, I'm not yeah. going to. No. 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 It doesn't make your teeth stronger. It makes everything worse. It makes your health worse. Why? What, where is that? Is that that's from what, – why, why would they think that? So there's this town in Colorado where there was a lot of fluoride in the water, and the kids had good teeth, and they just thought that maybe fluoride makes your teeth stronger. But there's no connection between systemic fluoride – and dental health zero okay that's what i yeah. thought i like the western a price method more that's what i prescribe to um yeah fat soluble k2 vitamin d reduced sugar you i'm gonna get slammed for this but you you don't need fluoride to have healthy teeth there's not a fluoride deficiency that, that's not why you have cavities no what do you think about the mouthwash don't use mouthwash. Um, I'm telling you, my patients that have mouthwash all the time have chronic bad breath. And I know they're linking studies to high blood pressure, diabetes, yes. and destroying the oral microbiome. And I can tell you from clinical experience, that's probably true. But it just it dries your mouth out. And the more you, you'll see in your patient, ask them if they use mouthwash. I bet they all have bad breath. Hey, I've sat in a couple anti-aging conferences. There's a Dr. Nathan Bryant. He's the big uh, guy saying that don't use mouthwash. It destroys your microbiome in the mouth, and it decreases nitric oxide uh, producing bacteria. Yep, which helps you control blood pressure and dilates your right. arteries. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. So are all your patients then pretty holistically minded? Do you have any patients? They are? Okay. Yeah. If they're not, they, they come to me and they, they learn it real quick. Like I had this guy the other day and uh, I don't know how he got to me, but I sat there and I told him he was vaccine injured, blew his mind. And uh, I said, we're going to do all of this, this, we're going to get you off your statin drug and we're going to, we're going to get you off your blood pressure pills. And he's like, what? I'm like, yeah. So how do does it. that work? If someone comes in and they prescribe statins from a physician, they come to see you because they like your work. Can you unprescribe that statin or do they have to voluntarily stop it themselves? No, it will unprescribe the statin first thing if they're having a, a side effect from it, which invariably they are. And then we do advanced lipid particle testing. We look at things like LPA little two. We look at ApoB. You know, we look at HSCRP. Uh, we look at myeloperoxidase, homocysteine. We look at these things that uh, predispose the patient to cardiac disease. And if these things are elevated, then we might reapproach the idea of statins, but we also approach why are they having all this inflammation in the first place? Are they metabolically healthy? And very well, the answer is no, they're not metabolically healthy. They have high insulin levels, right? They're eating sugars all the time. They're eating low protein diets. They're not getting exercise. This is a, they're not getting the right nutrients in the body. So yeah, they have high inflammation and, uh, you know, the statin drug, there's some statins like Rosuvastatin or Crestor, which actually lowers HSCRP. So I would prescribe that one, one, because it's, it does that, but it's also a water-soluble statin drug. So there's the lipid-soluble ones like Dorvastatin. These ones are more, uh, have more risk for causing myalgias, liver injuries, but also mostly crossing the blood-brain barrier and potentially accelerating cognitive decline. And that's some some linkage we're starting to see now with the, the lipid soluble statin drugs is accelerated cognitive decline. So we get patients off of those immediately and maybe we may reinvest in maybe resuvastatin at some point or maybe something else. So they're really bad if they have a prior MI, something like that. Maybe we'll look at some of these newer drugs like uh, PSK9 inhibitors. Uh, you know, there's indications for, for really bad cardiac disease, but there's a lot of other stuff we do as well. What else are you doing? Mostly improving their metabolic health, right? Getting that fasting insulin lower, getting the fat off their midsection, right? Everyone has visceral fat and visceral fat is an independent risk factor for cardiac mortality, more so than high cholesterol. So you have fat on your organs. All that fat on the organs accelerates your cardiac risk. So how is somebody reducing the fat from their organs? No, that's tricky. That's difficult. That takes hard yeah. work. <laughs> And that's the other component is I try to I try to motivate my patients to exercise. And we're not talking about just getting on the treadmill 45 minutes a day. We're talking about resistance training and specifically progressive overload of the muscle, growing the muscle. A lot of patients are resistant to this and they're resistant to resistance training, right? Uh, because it's difficult and not a lot of people understand how to stimulate the muscle to grow. I was I have a bachelor's in sports and exercise science. I was a personal trainer, so I understand how this, how this works. But I'd say most of the population has no clue how to grow their muscle. No clue. And so I tell patients, you need to hire a personal trainer like I was. You need to hire them. You need to pay them to watch you and make sure you're doing it right. Because patients will tell me, I've been going to the gym for 15 years. I haven't seen anything. 
Well, it's because they go there and they do a couple of bicep curls. They go walk on the treadmill and they talk to their friend for an hour and nothing gets done. They don't know how to train. Right? What is progressive overload? Basically, you create a program over, you know, 16 weeks, whatever it is. And you have goals for each of these weeks. So maybe you start out, you're very weak. You can only do a 10-pound dumbbell press, okay? By week two, you should be progressing. You should be doing more repetitions, maybe more sets, maybe more weight. Maybe that's the first thing you do. You just increase the load a little bit. Maybe it's a 15-pound dumbbell by week three. Uh, so you gradually over the weeks, you get stronger and stronger. Every week you have certain goals to achieve, to um, attenuate. And so you increase the stimulus on the muscle to make the muscle grow and get stronger and denser, make it more insulin sensitive, turn the muscle into a better endocrine organ. A lot of people think the muscle is just a lever. It just brings the beer can to your mouth. No, the muscle is an endocrine organ. You can't make your pancreas better but you can make your muscle better. You can make it a better absorber of carbohydrates and sugar to store those things in the muscle as glycogen. Glycogen is the storage form of glucose and people are very poor glycogen stores. Everyone's very good at storing fat. It's because they have high insulin levels all the time. They're not training. They have low muscle mass. They have high fat. This is called sarcopenia and it's an epidemic. You look at people at Walmart, they're all sarcopenic. They have high propensity for fat tissue and low muscle mass. So they're all insulin resistant. I don't need a test to tell me this. I just need to look at someone. I see fat on their midsection. They're insulin resistant. So if you lift weights, you get stronger muscles, you can store glycogen better. Where does that glucose go if you don't have the muscle to absorb it? Yeah, it can store as fat. It stores as fat. Okay. So did your, did your body preferentially store it as glycogen? If you have muscles? If you, yes, it does. Okay. Yeah. You see it only in athletes, though. They'll have super low fasting insulin levels. Like my fasting insulin level is about 2.2, 2.1. That's where it averages. The average patient has a fasting insulin of, of about 12, right? Some very bad ones are 20, 25. I've seen as high as 50. Fasting insulin level of 50, that's terrible. It means... They're, they're, their pancreas is working in overdrive. It's secreting all this insulin all the time to try to lower these blood sugars because they're constantly feeding their mouth. They're, trying to, they're eating all the time. Their pancreas never gets a break, right? So it's always secreting insulin. They're going to burn through their pancreas, right? These patients with high fasting insulin, when they're age 30, and I see it sometimes in children too, they have high fasting insulin. They're going to burn through their pancreas. They're going to be diabetics by the time, you know, they're, they're 40. If they have it when they're 30, they're going to be diabetics at 40. So you don't want to catch it when it's diabetes. Diabetes criteria is A1C. For me, it's greater than 5.6. For, I don't know, the American Diabetics Association, I think it's like 6.2 or 6.1, whatever it is. They keep lowering it over every year, lower, which is good. But for me, I even like to catch it before it gets there, before you start getting an elevated fasting glucose, before you have an A1C of 6. You want to catch it when your insulin is elevated when your insulin is above five. So you can get this for yourself, get a fasting insulin level. You want it below five, ideally. Athletes, athlete level is about three, right? That's it. That's an optimal level is below three. You know, you're very physically active. You have high muscle mass, you have low fat mass, and your body is basically a carbohydrate sponge. You can put a, <laughs> a carbohydrate in you and it stores it right in the muscle as glycogen. Now for, for diabetics, uh, oftentimes we prescribe 
low carbohydrate diet, keto diet, carnivore diet, just skip the carbohydrate metabolism because you can't do it. Yeah, <laughs> your pancreas is shot, and uh, you need to give it a break for a time. Can you get carbohydrate metabolism back, or once you burn through your pancreas, you pretty much have to eat a ketogenic diet? Yeah, I think there's a lot of patients who've abused their pancreas for too long, and it's too late for them. But I think children and younger adults, they have the propensity to heal it and bring it back and become an athlete, essentially. So that's that's what I try to teach my patients is uh, to have that high performance attitude towards life, right? To become the athlete, become a, a actually trained, not just exercise, but trained for, for a goal, which is to make yourself as healthy as possible. That's why I have that humor performance and optimization approach to the primary care patient. I treat every patient like you would treat an athlete, which is increase that protein intake, uh, train, train hard every day, supplement, supplement creatine, right? We do things that the bodybuilder and the athlete is doing to optimize performance. We're doing it in the primary care patient to prevent and reverse disease. Are your patients shocked to hear that muscle is more than just aesthetics? Because I just kind of fell onto this like a couple of years ago. But I'm, I thought in the past, strong muscles just looking good. I had no idea it actually helped your metabolism. Mm. Yeah, I think most people just think it's that lever brings the soda can to their mouth when they're sitting on the sofa. Yeah. That's, most, that's, what, that's what they're thought of it. And, and most of my colleagues too, uh, the, the internist I, I, I worked with once uh, – she saw that I diagnosed one of their patients with sarcopenia. And she's like, what's this term? You can't be making up these words and telling them to patients. Well, it's a real hard I know what that word meant. <laughs> so patients, I imagine when they start doing resistance training and they start eating a low-carb diet, do their fasting insulins drop pretty fast? Yeah. Typically, if you get off the carbohydrates and you do less frequent eating, your insulin levels come down very rapidly. It's it's quite reversible. Do you fast? I don't. Okay. It's, it's because I train so much. So you can put yourself into autophagy by, I think, three different mechanisms. You can put yourself into autophagy by exercise and resistance training and actually like interval training. This puts you into autophagy, which is that cellular turnover, eating up dead cells, cancerous cells, uh, improving fasting insulin. You can also improve it by fasting, you can prolong fasting, specifically 18 hours, that puts you into autophagy or prolong, we're talking about five day fasts, right? You can also do it through sauna. Sauna is interesting. The sauna is actually an exercise mimetic. So it mimics exercise for us. So you have a sedentary individual who can't exercise or won't, I don't know, better can't exercise. You put them in the sauna and it can imitate exercise and a bit of that autophagy. Uh, I think those are the three main ways. I don't know if you know of any other ways to get people into autophagy, but that's pretty much I didn't know about the exercise part. I didn't know that lifting or resistance training induce autophagy. It does induce autophagy. So I don't fast so much because I'm literally training every day. I bust my ass on the tennis court probably one and a half hours of high-intensity training. I lift weights every day. Uh, So I I typically will eat protein uh, twice a day. Uh, or three times a day. Usually three times a day, I'm eating protein with every meal. Protein and fats three times a day because I'm trying to maintain my muscle mass while doing all this tennis training. I'm one of the few athletes on the court with actually a good physique. Most of the kids I play against in these tournaments, they're little scrawny twig 
like 15 year olds. And they have arms <laughs> like this. So I'm there, 175 pounds. Like my arms are freaking huge. And so I need to both sustain this muscle mass while playing in professional tennis, which is basically unheard of. Very few people are like this. You can think of a few exceptions like you know, Verdasco and maybe Nadal in his prime. These guys were highly muscular. But most of the athletes, you look at Novak Djokovic and a lot of the these young kids, and they're very thin physiques. So what I'm doing is, is very unique. How do you manage tennis exercise and owning a clinic with employees? Um, well, actually, I don't have really much for employees. I've managed this all by myself over the past three years. Um, now I have a little bit of help. You know, my mom helps out a little bit with the human performance arena. My dad does too. But uh, I manage it all myself. And the way I manage it is by automation for the most part, right? I don't bill insurance. It's billed automatically through their credit card or the bank account every week. So that saves me a whole lot of time. Billing insurance takes forever. <laughs> uh, two, what else? Um, I try not to do a lot of prior authorizations. Those are a pain in the ass. So I tell patients, yeah, we can usually get the medicine more affordably through a compounding pharmacy or you know, good RX. So we try not to use prior authorizations very much. So doing that, it frees up a lot of my time. And I don't need to see 40 patients a day. I see, I have three hours a day that I see patients, right? Usually, uh, right now it's 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. That's when I see patients. And uh, even doing that, just, just three hours a day, that takes up a lot of time because I need to think about their case. I need to prescribe complex supplements, compounded medications, coming up with a, a unique plan for patients. So, uh, yeah, I guess uh, I'm just very good at it. I don't know if many people can can do what I'm doing. I'm very good at multitasking. So, wow. So you, you're open, what, 15 hours a week, your clinic? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Why did you pick three to six? Uh, right now, it's because I'm training. I have a professional tennis player st staying with me, and we train in the mornings every day. Okay. I used to be mornings uh, uh, 10 to about 1 p.m., I might go back to that, but I like three to six because it allows people to come after work too. So it's very convenient for patients. Are patients ever weary about such limited hours? Are they worried that, okay, you only open three hours a day? Mm, no, because if they're sick, I fit them in. So I leave, I leave those hours before and after for patients who are sick. So I can all, I always have time to fit in someone as needed, right? That's the other problem with the primary care is try getting a primary care appointment with someone who takes insurance they're scheduling a month or two out, right? It's because they've filled their patients with 40 a day. It's because they have to make sure they bill 40 times a day to keep the lights on. For me, it doesn't matter if I see a lot of patients or not. But I keep those hours open because if someone's sick, I'm going to see them that day. So that time is always there for them. Okay. And are you practicing independently? Maybe the rules are different in Michigan. How does the physician assistant own his own medical clinic? Well, we have to have a, a collaborating MD signed on to that. Which we Okay. Have. And both, you have one MD or two that work with you? Two. And two they are totally in line with everything you're teaching. Well, yeah. I specifically brought on one recently because he's very aware of what's going on. And he actually got pushed out of the urgent care for prescribing ivermectin, right? So he's a very intelligent functional medicine doctor. And I was like, well, why is this functional medicine doctor of 30 years getting slapped on the wrist for prescribing ivermectin? Who has the right to tell him what to do? 
And I told him about what I was doing. I was like, listen, you have so much experience. You shouldn't be working for these idiots who are telling you what to do. Come work with me. You can do your own thing. You can do whatever you want. And that's what we do here. And so he's on, he's loving it. He's prescribing uh, IV ozone, uh, IV nutrients, uh, IV NAD. He loves the IVs, all sorts of interesting peptides and compounds. He comes up with these interesting things and he prescribes it for patients. He recently came across, he came, he gave me this study the other day about colchicine. Like colchicine? He's like, look at this study. I read this study. It's it brilliant. Colchicine has been around for like a thousand years. It was uh, given to the soldiers in Alexander the Great's army. So they could take a spear through the gut and continue on fighting. So he's been prescribing colchicine for patients with chronic pain and all sorts of issues. And I, I always thought you could only prescribe colchicine for like one or two days. But no, he prescribes it for patients like long term every day. They're doing great. He has patients with like long COVID. He had one the other day, long COVID, couldn't walk, couldn't move. Uh, gave this guy colchicine, guy's running the bridge, running, running uh, 5Ks now. It's amazing. So he comes up with these things. He looks at the mechanisms. He thinks about the root cause of the disease. And he's like, well, this can apply to this guy. Let's try it out. So it's completely off the books. You can't, you can't learn about this in school. You have to, to spend time to think critically about mechanisms and pathophysiology, which that's what a functional medicine doctor does. They're, they're very brilliant. They think about things very detailed. And they come up with unique solutions that you can't just, you won't learn about anywhere. What is culturezine? Is it a pain medication yeah it's basically an anti-inflammatory pain medication. like an NSAID no mm -hmm. no it's completely different yeah. okay it must be is it like a, a plant if it's been around that long or yeah there's no way your type of medicine can exist in insurance it's, it's impossible because no. if you had to see impossible. patients every seven minutes of course the endpoint is a pill yeah wow do you talk to any of your old PA classmates uh, one, he, he's the only one, uh, he's, uh, he's the only one. he's a conservative and, uh, he was actually really pro vaccine back in the day. And, and we, we would get into polite discussions and arguments about it. Uh, but, uh, during the pandemic, his eyes were really opened to, uh, how wrong he was being pro vaccine. And, uh, yeah, he's now he'd come out and, and talk to me he's like, Hey man, I follow what you're doing. You know, I've really had my eyes opened up during the pandemic. And so that was cool to see, but that's pretty rare. Yeah. Well, you're rare because you are going in the face of mainstream medicine. Everything you're doing is a complete opposite and you're thriving. Yeah. That's amazing. So we're actually, we're coming up on this hour mark. I always ask a couple questions at the end. What is one takeaway you'd want the audience to have from this hour interview? Well, to demand better from your primary care and your doctors, okay, ask them questions, have intellectual curiosity. Don't just accept a diagnosis. If someone tells you you have something, ask them, why do I have this? What's the root cause? And if they don't have an alternative solution for you, if they don't have like five different things to offer you, go seek different care, right? Because there's not just one solution. I found in medicine. It doesn't matter what condition it is. There's probably five or 10. There's probably a hundred different solutions that you're not even aware of. So if someone tells you this is it, and this is, this is what we do, that's dogma. That's religion. That's not medicine. That's not science. Medicine is not straightforward. It's a very gray. It's a complete art. We don't know what the heck we're doing, but we have to find out the root cause 
at our best, uh, our best ability to find the root cause and try things for patients to optimize their life, right? There's not one size fits all for everyone, but that's what you get when you go to an insurance-based practitioner. They have to do that. You have to understand how that works. They don't have time to give you five different options and try to come up with different solutions for you. They have time for one option and it has to be no question. You just have to follow it, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. You're the only medical practitioner that would say we don't know what we're doing yet. And it's so gray. It's a complete art to medicine. No one knows exactly uh, what they're doing, right? No one, no one knows. You can't tell for certain what anything does. You have to just try certain things out. We know some things that are very bad. We know some things that are very good. And then there's a lot of gray in between. Like we know smoking's very bad for you, okay? We think fluoride's pretty bad for you, right? We kind of know that vaccines might be helpful at preventing like smallpox and stuff like that. But we're now learning that vaccines can cause a lot of problems too. There's a whole lot of gray area there, okay? From curing smallpox to a guy who has chronic migraines now because he got the jab two months ago. Huge difference there. Huge. Yeah. So what's the number one thing you'd recommend to anyone off the street to improve their health? Uh, just lift weights. Don't be afraid of lifting iron weights and actually progressively overloading the muscle. That's the best thing you can do for your health. Progressively overload the muscle. I love that. You have an X3, don't you? I do. I've been using Okay, it, I have yeah. one too. I'm still on the, the small white band, but I'm worried. Oh, you are, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, I hard. I haven't really got beyond that. Uh, I mean, I've done the black one once, but that one, you got to be careful with that one. That one's so heavy. Oh my gosh, I know. So, Dude, it once, it once I went pushed out, my wrist snapped back and the thing flew and it hit me in the yeah. chest. Knocked me out. I, had, I, I, was, I think I was doing shoulder press or something and my wrist flipped and the thing came down on my knee. I was like, I'm going to see the guy go to the hospital after this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So where can people find you? Tell me all your Instagram. Do you work with people out of Florida or you're only in person? Well, as far as licensure goes, if I want to prescribe medicines, uh, you know, testosterone, they have to be in Florida. I do do health consulting and, and health coaching for patients outside. So I can still do that. But uh, yeah, they can find me on irondpc.com and Iron Direct Primary Care on YouTube and Instagram. Awesome. Yeah. And follow Stefan's Instagram. It's, I, I love everything you're posting. I love that thing you posted where it was like the voiceover where you said you eat fries and fast food all day. Nobody bats an eye, but as soon as you start to eat some protein, everybody's a doctor. That is that's yeah. so true. Dude, it's wild. Cause I will get like, I'll be checking out at Publix and like the lady in the Publix, you know, she's like super old and, and very sick looking. She's got these ulcers all across her arms she sees what i mean she's like oh you gotta be careful with all the butter yeah and, and like her arm fell off during that yeah i can't believe it. i get health advice from these yeah people. that blows my mind the people that give you health advice and then you look at them and you're like i don't know if you know what you're saying yeah you know, they're just repeating what they heard their doctor tell them or the tv tell yeah them. but if you're if you're so unhealthy you can't give health. Like if you're, if you're homeless, you can't teach me to be rich. It's just, it's just a rule. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> Perfect way to end it. Well, enjoy your weekend. I cannot thank you enough for doing this. I'm sure I'll talk to you soon.